0: You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear Nuclear energy, natural gas, gas. energy infrastructure, solar phone, wind turbines. We've seen more than a hundred of the world's largest financial institutions now say they will no longer fund thermal coal coal 5 power generation. The IEA thinks or projects that we hit peak coal burn back in 2013-2014. For May 17th, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. One of the biggest conundrums for long-time observers of the energy transition is why coal mining communities have continued to white-knuckle their interests in coal for years, even decades, after it was abundantly clear that the industry was well into decline and would never come back. Surely, we thought, the people of coal country must eventually recognize the reality of their situation. Surely the miners would look at the endless series of coal company bankruptcies that vaporized their pensions and health insurance on the one hand, and the continuing declines in the prices of coal's competitors like shale gas and renewables on the other, and realize that there was no way to turn back those trends... Surely they would understand that the global effort to cut carbon emissions in order to address the existential threat of climate change was much too big and important to be held back by a tiny and ever-shrinking coal industry that just pretended all that could be ignored or delayed? How could the people of coal country persist in ignoring these utterly obvious and incontrovertible realities all around them? And how could they continue to believe the claims that the decline of coal could be blamed on the transparently silly war on coal allegations made by politicians who clearly had vested financial interests in the business? Indeed, that was the question we addressed in the very first episode of this podcast, which, sadly, remains relevant today. We're going to finally get some answers to those questions today. Jamie Van Nostrand is a longtime lawyer who has worked for both utility regulators and for utility company clients and served as a professor of utility law and regulation in several states. One of those states is West Virginia. The poster child of coal industry denial about the energy transition. In his 2022 book, The Coal Trap: How West Virginia Was Left Behind in the Clean Energy Revolution, he details how the politics of West Virginia and the actions of its coal industry proponents and lobbyists allowed West Virginians to persist in their dedication to the coal industry despite everything, and how that ultimately cost West Virginians not just a lost decade of action in the energy transition but decades to come of totally unnecessary high costs for grid power that they will continue to pay for remaining committed to coal when everyone else, even other neighboring coal states, had already gotten on board with the energy transition and begun to enjoy the lower costs of renewables and shale gas. It's a fascinating book and Jamie is a true expert on the topic and I know you will find his explanations of coal country's recalcitrance illuminating in this extra-long episode. Then in the news segment we'll have, naturally, an extra-long edition of our occasional feature, Coal Death Watch. But before we go to the interview... Announcements, 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 announcements... We'd like to welcome our latest group subscribers. The New South Wales Office of Energy and Climate Change in Australia delivers its Electricity Infrastructure Roadmap, along with other policy guidance, such as a net zero plan which includes an EV strategy. And Fitch Solutions, part of the Fitch Group, provides credit research on over 20,000 entities around the world, which informs products such as Fitch Ratings Credit Research and Fitch Ratings ESG Relevance Scores Data. Fitch is the first credit ratings agency to subscribe to the show, and we're thrilled to have them join We're so pleased to have both organizations join our listeners. And now, our conversation with Jamie Van Nostrand, recorded March thirty first, 2023. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Jamie, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks, Chris. Great to be on the show. I just read your book, The Coal Trap, How West Virginia Was Left Behind in the Clean Energy Revolution, which was published last year. And it answered many questions for me about why the people of coal country have been so determined to cling to the dying coal industry and to deny the reality of the energy transition that I just had to invite you on the show to share your insights. Because although the book is focused on West Virginia, which is by far the most extreme example, I think those insights apply in a lot of ways to the other coal states. And you very effectively contrast how other coal states, like Virginia and Kentucky, eventually acknowledge that the energy transition was unstoppable and that the coal industry wasn't ever coming back. But let's take it from the top. Most of the book is focused on what you call the lost decade from 2009 to 2019. What was significant about those years?
1: I think it made sense to start off in 2009. That's when Obama took office. And we had a lot of narrative in West Virginia about the war on coal and blaming everything on Obama's job, killing EPA. So you just had a, a president who was determined to attack greenhouse gas emissions and to address climate change. And of course, coal was the biggest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions in the electricity generation industry. Other big thing was the onset of fracking in West Virginia, sitting on top of the Marcellus Shale, which is the biggest shale play in the in the country, and that pretty much scaled up 2007, 2008. By the 2009, we really realized what a game changer that was in terms of cheap and plentiful natural gas, and that had clear implications for the coal industry once. Generators started converting to natural gas, and new natural gas combined cycle combustion turbines were installed. It really drove down wholesale prices, and that put coal out of the money. And that was a, a big impact on the coal industry. And of course, by the end of the last decade, the 2018-2019, you had, you had wind and solar, which were increasingly competitive with coal. So it seemed like a nice bookend in terms of those 10 years and sort of how the state handled the transition or didn't handle the transition in the case of West Virginia.
0: Right. All right. Well, as the title of the book implies, coal has been a trap for West Virginia. Why have West Virginians been so attached to the coal industry? Well,
1: I've been there in the state since 2011, and you learn pretty early on that coal is a source of great pride in the state in terms of the legacy of coal, which we industrialized the United States on the back of the Appalachian coal miners and lots of Lots of families, lots of my students, their father was a coal miner, their uncle or their grandfather. I mean, it's just a source of great pride in the state. And it's, it's been a real difficulty, I think, moving past that. I learned pretty early on, it's almost like a test of patriotism. Are you with us or against us? And that's been a challenge, I think, for the politicians, basically, to be able to move on beyond coal because it's just such a legacy for the state.
0: Mm-hmm. So how did the coal industry work to lobby and corrupt the legislature, regulators, and other officials to try to preserve their investments as the industry was dying?
1: One of the things I talked about in the book was around 2002, there were some fairly controversial heavy truck accidents involving coal hauling trucks in southern West Virginia. And about the same time, you also started having mountaintop removal. So there was a recognition by the industry gee, we're employing fewer miners because we're using mountaintop removal and the environmental destruction is huge, so we need to do something about our image. So they created this entity called the Friends of Coal. The West Virginia Coal Association hired a public relations firm, and they rolled out the Friends of Coal, which was truly brilliant in a sense. Basically, the objective was to exaggerate the role of the coal industry, how important it was. You had Friends of Coal stickers everywhere. You had the Friends of Coal sponsoring all sorts of events all across the state, even had a curriculum for the schools, So the kids growing up in the West Virginia schools basically learn about the importance of coal in West Virginia. They have to write essays about the importance of coal in West Virginia. And it was just a brilliant strategy and also involved a couple of very popular football coaches, Don Nealon in West Virginia and the head coach at Marshall. You got a NASCAR driver, you got a military officer, a bass fisherman, brought all these folks in to do some really compelling ads. And it was very effective. And Along with that, you had the decline and in the influence of the unions, the United Mine Workers. Just one, you had coal companies that were union busting, and so you had fewer union coal miners, but then you also just had fewer miners in general because you had mechanization and mountaintop removals. so There were just fewer miners overall, so it's, it's like the Friends of Coal pretty much filled that vacuum in terms of the organizing point around which the coal industry was focused.
0: You know, the cash prizes for teachers and the other kinds of ways that Friends of Coal funded educational programs seems to me a particularly insidious (laughs) part of this whole program. I mean, I don't know what West Virginia's teaching budgets look like, I know. All the other teachers I know outside of West Virginia and other states really struggled. Some of them even have to pay for school supplies for their students out of their own pockets because there's just no money from the school. So this seems to me to be a particularly egregious example of inserting themselves where they really don't belong and taking advantage of a situation where people really need money for a very basic fundamental I would call it a human right an education and leveraging that into basically propagandizing and programming students to grow up thinking that the coal industry is noble and good. I think the term I used in my book was
1: the brainwashing of a generation. And it went beyond the prizes. I mean, there were actually like lesson plans you could download and recipes to make different desserts and things. It was a very thorough curriculum. So it's a resource to the teachers. Here's a lesson plan I can do tomorrow. And, and so you have at WVU, my law students, I mean, two-thirds of them are from West Virginia. And so a lot of the students, especially from the southern part of the state where the coal regions are, they
0: actually grew up with this curriculum. Wow amazing. And then Friends of Coal managed to appropriate union culture as well, which is kind of mind-blowing.
1: Yeah, that was the one thing in terms of just appropriating the image of the miner, which was very clever because everybody loves the coal miners. They have the the overalls with the reflective stripes and everything, and it's I think it was particularly almost reprehensible when you consider how the coal operators actually treat the miners. The fact that they appropriated the image of the miners to stand for the coal industry. So people would think coal industry, miners, synonymously. When in fact, whenever the coal operators would declare bankruptcy, what's the first constituency that they try to take out? They're going to wipe out the pension and care benefits for the retired coal miners. And in terms of protecting them in the mines, how to deal with black lung disease, rolling back safety regulations whenever they can in order to minimize expenses. They pretty much imperil the lives of the miners and make it much less safe for the miners to do their jobs. And so
0: it was very clever, very clever. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, Or unconscionable. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, the ways in which politicians and regulators in West Virginia and their backers in the coal industry have denied the reality of the energy transition and lied to their constituents about the reasons for it and the poor prospects for the coal industry in the future are really just too numerous to really cover today. But perhaps you could just give us a few of the highlights. Well, throughout the last
1: decade, really, that was all about the war on coal. It was blaming everything on Obama and Obama's job killing EPA. That was pretty much the narrative we had a lot of politicians throughout that decade that that's what they ran on it's like who hates the epa more who loves the coal industry more and that was really driving a lot of the elections during that entire period of course another thing we had coming out was the mercury and air toxic standard the math rule which actually did result in this closure of of coal plants in west virginia because it just didn't make economic sense to make the investments in the pollution control equipment to keep the plants open And then, of course, we had the Clean Power Plan that was rolled out by Obama in August of 2015. Everybody hated the Clean Power Plan, and we actually did a study at the center working with some folks at Downstream Strategies, an environmental consulting firm in Morgantown, and we did a study and said, well, gee, how would the Clean Power Plan actually work for West Virginia, given there are a lot of tools there provided for in the proposed rule in terms of being able to trade credits and and things like that. And and our take on it well gee it's really not all that bad it actually forces the state to do the sort of statewide energy planning that we should be doing anyway but of course the official narrative coming out of west virginia was this was just the sky is falling and here we were coming out with this report actually it's really not all that bad And then, of course, later on, it's just, again, I think just denial of the role of natural gas and complaining that the only problem with the coal industry would be if the EPA would just leave us alone. I mean, that was the narrative, the war on coal, Obama's job killing EPA. That was what our politicians were telling the citizens of West Virginia throughout that 10-year period. And it was just completely ignoring the overwhelming market forces in terms of low-cost natural gas, and then later on in the decade, low-cost wind and solar that were really causing the demise of the coal industry,
0: and the environmental regulations really had very little to do with it. And for those who aren't maybe intimately familiar with the MATS rule, that was that's the mercury air toxics rule, yeah. and that was implemented essentially in response to a major problem that we had across North America of what they were calling at the time acid rain, which was killing our forests. And then I believe Sox and Nox, sulfur oxides and nitrogen oxides were regulated under mats as well, right? Yeah primarily mercury, but
1: it picks up all the other air toxics as well. Yeah, it was basically, I think the Obama administration adopted it in December of 2011, but utilities could get extensions for three or four years. And so the plants that closed down, that was pretty much in 2015 or 2016. And it wasn't clear whether it was a math rule that was driving those closures or that's about the time that the wholesale prices really started falling because we had lots of natural gas being extracted and we had technological breakthroughs really in terms of natural gas combined cycle combustion turbines that really made it much cheaper to generate electricity with natural gas so that really put the coal plants out of the money.
0: I mean, it's really sort of two sides of the same coin. Like, if you <laughs> if you don't think you're going to be able to compete after making a very significant investment in air pollution control equipment, then right. you're probably not going to make that investment. Okay. Right. Tell me a little bit more about some of the key names here, because I think it's important to highlight who these people are and what their roles were. And so in particular here, I'm thinking about the West Virginia delegation to the house and also Joe Manchin and some of these other characters. Yeah, I spent a whole chapter in the book
1: on Senator Manchin because he was governor of West Virginia at the time, the beginning of the lost decade in 2009. While he was governor, the state actually passed a Renewable and Alternative Energy Portfolio Standard, which was pretty much worthless in terms of actually stimulating the development of renewable energy the way it defined alternative energy. It basically included all the supercritical coal plants. So at the time the statute was enacted, it was already satisfied by by the output of supercritical coal. And then of course he went to the Senate and by the end of the last decade and the beginning of the 2020s, he was a very powerful person in Washington, D.C. and really had responsibility for shaping a lot of the energy legislation. The other members of the Senate delegation that I spent some time talking about were Robert Byrd, who was chair of the Senate Appropriations Committee at the early years of the last decade before he passed away. Of course, at the very end of his career, he was a strong proponent of the coal industry and protection of the coal miners. But he started turning on the coal industry at the very end and made some very impressive speeches and writings toward the end of his career. Of course, at the time, he wasn't going to have to face the voters of West Virginia again. And I spent some time talking about Senator Jay Rockefeller, who had been governor and then became U.S. Senator. And he was also a pretty good advocate for the coal industry, particularly mine safety. And again, he, in summer 2012, when it was clear, he's not going to run for reelection. again, he made an incredible speech on the floor of the U.S. Senate. In fact, it was in response to a resolution proposed that would have reversed the, the math rule, the mercury and air toxic standard, and that gave Jay Rockefeller a chance to make this speech about how poorly the coal industry had treated West Virginians, how we need to move on, we need to address climate change. But of course, again, he was not gonna face the voters again. Yeah. and He was succeeded by Senator Shelley Moore Capito, who had been in the House for several terms before she ran for the U.S. Senate and succeeded in taking Senator Rockefeller's
0: seat in November of 2014. And then there was a couple of other members of the West Virginia delegation, David McKinley and Nick Rahal.
1: Yeah, Rahal was in there quite a bit. I didn't spend much time talking about him. McKinley, I knew pretty well because he was former state Republican chair from the Northern Panhandle. So when I was in Morgantown, he was actually my congressman. And he was forced out when West Virginia lost a congressman in the last census. We went from three to two and he was forced into a a runoff with another congressman in the state and and lost his seat and mckinley was really really good at playing across party lines and that turned out to be his downfall he ended up voting for the infrastructure bill and voting for the january 6th commission that just would not abide with former president trump who endorsed who endorsed his opponent and mckinley was soundly beat in the 2022 Republican primary.
0: Mm-hmm. And then there was also, with respect to the fight against Mets, good old Senator Jim Inhofe played a role there too, didn't he?
1: Yeah, he was the one who pretty much sponsored the resolution. You know, the Congressional Review Act, you can basically pass with a simple majority in both the House and the Senate. You can express your displeasure with a particular rule, and that was the goal, was to... Use the congressional review act to reverse math but of course as long as obama is president all he has to do is veto and there wasn't enough votes to override the veto but yeah imhoff has been a pretty consistent opponent of doing anything to address climate change
0: and right around this time was joe manchin's famous ad
1: (laughs) yeah he actually ran for the u.s senate when senator Byrd passed away he had to run for a special election to fill the seat and then had to run again a year later and he was criticized for, is he strong enough opponent of EPA and a strong enough proponent for the coal industry? And at that time, the ACEs, the American Clean Energy and Security Act, also known as the Waxman-Markey Bill, was making its way through the House in June of 2009. And so Manchin famously had an ad where he took a rifle and shot the cap-and-trade bill.
0: It's bad for West Virginia. So very famous ad. Mm-hmm. So rather than taking on these serious conversations about the energy transition, they were just all politicking against Obama, against the EPA, and for the good and righteous people of the coal industry.
1: Yes, pretty much. And like I say, the narrative was it was all Washington, D.C.'s fault. Everything would be fine in the coal industry if the EPA would just would just leave us alone. And of course, by the time we get to 2016, then you have... Trump coming to the state and basically proclaiming how he's going to put a lot of minors back to work. Very popular narrative, of course. And Jim Justice was reelected as a as a Democrat, as the governor in 2016. And then as soon as Trump came to the state, he ended up flipping and he became became a Republican. And of course, I think what it all happened is what we see. And frankly, the Trump administration was pretty effective at rolling back all the things that the EPA had done with Scott Pruitt and then later Andrew Wheeler. They pretty much gutted the Clean Power Plan and reversed a lot of the environmental policies that had been enacted by the Obama administration. And guess what? It didn't result in the coal plants closing down any more slowly than they did before. In fact, I think more coal plants closed down in four years under Trump than in the last four years under Obama. So it's pretty obvious the state had been sold a bill of goods by by both Trump and Jim Justice, the jobs are coming back in the coal industry because they really are. Because guess what? It's overwhelming market forces. It was natural gas, wind and solar. It really wasn't the EPA after all. So I think it was very disheartening and a lot of disillusionment, I think, because they've just been promised all these things. And they said the real problem is the EPA. And it turns out it's not the problem at all. And back to sort of the core of the book is what that result in is why I call it the lost decade is we've known since 2009 that things are fundamentally changed in the energy industry and coal is no longer going to be the future. And what that did was it just put off for 10 years. That's the lost decade is we should have been underway on this transition, had politicians done their job and led the state to what we elected them to do and tell us what we need to hear instead of what we want to hear. We would have been way far ahead, far down the road on that energy transition, but instead We waste our time. We tell the people, oh, transition is not necessary. The cold jobs are coming back. And that was a lie. It was just a lie. And they knew at the time that they were
0: saying it, it was a lie. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now it's time for another exciting episode of... Cold Death Watch! Item 1. The same day that we did this interview, a story was published in the Ohio Capital Journal that served as the perfect coda to this story. First Energy is apparently again considering moving its money-losing Pleasance Power Station, the 1.3 gigawatt coal-fired plant located in Pleasance County, West Virginia, over to Mon Power, its regulated West Virginia affiliate. But this time, there's a twist. Let's recap what's happened with this plant. As Jamie explained in the interview, in 2016, First Energy first tried to transfer the Pleasance power station to Monpower in order to push the plant's losses onto Monpower's captive ratepayers, but they were rebuffed by FERC, who saw through the ruse and said that they didn't think it would be fair to Monpower's customers. Then the West Virginia PSC stepped in and approved the transfer anyway, so long as First Energy agreed to cover any cost overruns if its gas price forecasting was poor. First Energy subsidiaries Monpower and Potomac Edison rejected those conditions because, heaven forbid, they should actually have to absorb their losses, and First Energy temporarily gave up on the gambit to transfer the plant to a regulated subsidiary. Then, in 2019, First Energy came back with a scheme to convince the West Virginia legislature to bail out the Pleasant Station with a $12.5 million reprieve from the business and occupation tax, which the legislature approved in a special legislative session just for them, but First Energy was still carrying the Pleasant Station albatross. Then in 2020, First Energy transferred ownership of the Pleasance plant to itself from its Allegheny Energy Supply Company subsidiary. That move was part of a bankruptcy reorganization in the $1.3 billion bailout it obtained in Ohio Bill HB-6 for four of its economically failing power plants two nuclear plants and two coal plants. Between 2017 and 2020, the company paid over $60 million in bribes to secure the bailout as a part of a massive racketeering scandal involving Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder and State GOP Chairman Matthew Borges. Those two men were just convicted in March, as we detailed in the news of the previous episode. First Energy was charged federally with conspiring to commit wire fraud and paid a $230 million fine in 2021. Then in early January of this year, First Energy was fined another $3.9 million for failing to tell FERC about its bribery payments. At this point, the plant has been bailed out twice in the past four years, according to my count, and it is now scheduled to finally close this June. But wait, there's more! Governor Jim Justice and a handful of West Virginia legislators are intent on keeping the plant open. So the West Virginia PSC ordered the First Energy subsidiaries to submit a report on the feasibility of buying the Pleasance facility by March 31st, along with granting the two companies a $92 million rate increase. So Power and Potomac Edison, both First Energy subsidiaries, filed a proposal on March 1st, as ordered, to keep the Pleasance plant operating for another year beginning June 1st and asked for an additional $36 million surcharge to fund its operation. If First Energy were to go through with the transfer, it would eliminate any hope of their achieving their own greenhouse gas reduction targets and expose the company to further regulatory risks associated with owning coal plants, potentially raising its costs, as it said in its own 10K filing in December. Now the question is, would First Energy rather remain exposed to the risk of owning coal plants or just shut the Pleasance plant down in June as planned? If the former, will Governor Justice and his hand-picked PSC face any voter backlash for continuing to burden them with even more uneconomic coal assets? And if it's the latter, what will be the political fallout for West Virginia's governor and coal-defending legislators? As of this writing, the West Virginia PSC has scheduled a hearing for April 23rd on the proposal. <music> Item 2. At 1.3 gigawatts, the Pleasant's Power Station is the second largest coal-fired power plant retirement expected this year, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, or EIA. The agency expects coal and natural gas-fired power plants to account for 98% of U.S. capacity retirement... <music> Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow@mastodon.energy at or on Twitter at Transition show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melzheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.